The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 143 for the week of, what is it, uh, November 20... It's, uh, 5th? 25th. Yes, it's the it's yeah. going to be Monday, November 25th, which wow. means we're just a few days away from Thanksgiving. I know. Uh you doing anything fun, Rob? Um I am going to have a wonderful time with my family. We're we're kind of getting out of town and uh enjoying a small family event. What about yourself? Oh, we are uh going to be here. I have family coming into town, so that'll be nice. My parents are coming in and my brother and his wife. Uh just cooking dinner at home, making a turkey. Should awesome. be fun. Uh, well, I guess that, you know, since we're going to be doing so much family stuff, we are going to take off next week from the podcast so people can, can finally say, ooh, there's some relief. They don't have that work to do next week. I'm glad you told me, Rob. Otherwise, I'd have shown up at your house and I would have been confused and yeah. uh, well, who it, knows. It is confusing. It is confusing. Yes. Uh, well, well, that is uh, that, that's exciting and looking forward to the week of, of Thanksgiving. Uh, before we jump into the news, just a little bit of housekeeping. We do have a Slack channel with over 1,160 people in it, some of our best friends. Um, we are, we're, and I actually just sent a note to the Slack channel suggesting that we would love to have someone who's good at um, web design and kind of uh, does some web work who could help spruce up the front of the Colorado Equal Security what, webpage. You, you mean our website is not uh, amazing and wonderful and dynamic, Rob? Well, what it looks like is it was done by a security guy. That's uh, what it looks like. <laughs> I I can agree with that. But if you do, in want fact, to, it was done by a security. If guy. you want to see what we're talking about, uh, go to Colorado-Security.com and enjoy the UI that we've uh, we've so painstakingly put together. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our mailing list. If you scroll to the bottom of that page, there is a form where you can put in your email. Sign up, you will get the show notes delivered to you in your email every week. Of course, if you're one of those people who would like to help us update the website, send us a note at info at colorado-security.com and let us know. We do have a little bit of that sweet, sweet Patreon money that we could Ooh. offer for, for the person who does that. So uh, a couple cents so, maybe. So so let us know and we'd be happy to, to get you plugged in and help us do that. Uh, we also um, are on all of your pos- popular uh, podcast feeds, uh, including iTunes, Google uh, Play Store. So if you go there, we would Spotify. love- Spotify. Spotify. We would love for you to, to rate us so that other folks know that this is a great podcast. And uh, and also subscribe so you get the podcast delivered to you in your podcast player every week. And once you're subscribed and you're thinking to yourself, man, I wish there was more I could do. Well, good news is there's a couple more things you could do. Uh, you could tell a friend, go tell a coworker, tell any random stranger you see that Colorado Equal Security is Colorado's best security podcast. That's true. You could also sign up with Patreon uh, to support us monetarily. Um, we do incur some costs for... Uh, running Colorado Equals Security and putting the podcast together. So if you would like to contribute to defraying some of those costs, please sign up at Patreon. You can find a link on the website to our Patreon. And finally, we would love it uh, to get more engaged with with more of you guys to help do interviews for the podcast. As you guys know, we do the newscast at the beginning, and then we try and do a deep dive interview with someone in the community. And we've had, we've had some really great volunteers who've helped do this. I know that they've all really enjoyed being an interviewer. If you're interested in getting involved, we have plenty of folks for you to go talk to, and we'd be happy to get you in the loop and figure out how to do it. Awesome. Well, let's jump into the news. First, uh, this week, there's some big beer news, Rob. Uh, New Belgium Brewery, their sellouts. They're yeah. selling out to, uh, well, technically an Australian 
um, conglomerate, but it's owned by uh, by Kieran, by a Japanese it, beer it maker. It feels kind of like a flat tire to me. Ooh. Yeah. Ba-dum-bum. Been waiting for that. Yeah. Just been waiting. Yeah. It's a sweet, sweet pun. Uh, yeah, so uh, unfortunately, you know, this is uh, this is one of the big success stories of Colorado, especially, you know, the Colorado beer community. It's, it's number one. You know, I went to... Uh, I got my MBA from Fort Collins and the new Belgian brewery, the way they did business employee owned operation, everyone is as they hire, get hired on they're they're given a new bicycle as a part of the onboarding. Yeah. Um, it's just really well known for being a really cool company. Uh, well, no longer is it going to be an independent company with all those things. Yeah, it is. It is sad. Um, it is sort of the state of, uh, of beer today. The, the breweries that have gotten big enough where they are not um, craft, you know, microbreweries anymore. They're, you know, your New Belgiums, you know, formerly Breckenridge, things like that. Um, it's getting harder for them to compete with the, the gigantic beer makers, but um, they're also being squeezed on the other end from, you know, all of the new small right. microbreweries that are coming up. So, you know, they need money to compete. And really the only way that they can do that is to, to sell to a larger brewer. Um, so some interesting facts from the article, New Belgium is the largest craft brewery in Colorado, and it's the fourth largest in the U.S., behind Youngling, Boston Beer, and Sierra Nevada. Um, they had more than 300 of their employee owners are going to receive more than $100,000 through this deal. So you know, obviously that's that seems unprecedented to me considering yeah, the size of this company that so many people are going to do well. So it just goes to say what a, what a unique and, and cool company this is. Uh, of course, they also say that none of the employees, neither in Colorado um, or in Asheville, are going to be affected by it. They're not going to get laid off. And in fact, the leadership team is also going to stay on board. Yeah, that is one of the cool things about New Belgium is that they are an employee owned company. So um, the employees do benefit from them selling to a larger company. All right. Uh, next story here is uh, that Colorado has unveiled a $1.6 billion roadmap of highway projects for the next three years. We talk a lot about this, uh, maybe not so much on this podcast, but I hear a lot of conversation around the the fact that the roads in Colorado need a lot of work and yeah. we, have to, we, have, we need some infrastructure investment. Yeah. So they've put forth a plan for where they are going to put the, uh, the current money that they have to do investment. Uh, some of that is going to be, um, well, I think they said 70% of that money is going to be towards I-25 in some part or another. Um, but it, it is going to be um, in all parts of the state on I-25. Um, also looking to do some of the some work on Floyd Hill, which gets backed up from ski traffic. It's westbound I-70. Yep. And then, uh, and then lots of other places. The, the interesting thing, though, is that $1.6 billion uh price tag, I think is only like 15% of what they actually need to, to do all of the road improvements. Yeah, I, what I saw was a $9 billion road uh, to, total price tag. So whatever, whatever that would be, 20% or 18%. Uh, next story here is also about a lot of cars, uh, maybe not quite as many cars. In-N-Out Burger has received official approval from the from the city council of Lone Tree to, to do that bill that we talked about what a month or so ago on County line uh, near park Meadows mall, right next to the fidelity. And part of this is that they are going to have a 26 car drive through lane. So what I want to know, Rob is if you're car 26 in the drive through, how long does it take to get your hamburger? Uh, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing there will be a lot more than 26 cars in that line. 
That's true. Uh, that so, true. so it's probably more about what does it take to be car number 70 and what's the weight going to look like for those guys. Um, so of course they do expect enormous volumes at the first year of operations. Um, and interesting to me, in and out has agreed to restripe Westview and Parkland roads, which are just West of the mall to create a dedicated left turn only lane into this. So even though there's the only, only the 26 spots, they're going to have a lane outside of the parking lot for those cars to wait in. It is going to be a mess over there. Um, uh, I look forward to having an in and out there at least once, but it might be, I don't know, six months after it opens. You or just something have like to that. go have your in and out at 8 a.m. when they first open, but before yeah. everyone realizes they're open. Something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, there, it, there's also a Chick-fil-A that is right there that is always busy as well, so it's going to be a, a lot of traffic. In that you might end up eating more Chick-fil-A because the, the in and out line is going to be so terrible. You never know. Um, next. Uh, there was an article this week talking about how Boulder and Denver are both highly susceptible to disruption from artificial intelligence for white collar workers. So this is an interesting article. You know, we, we hear a lot about automation taking away jobs. And I think the example the article starts off with is if you go to a fast food restaurant these days, there's there's a kiosk to order food in addition to your your cashiers. Um, but this, this new study was used a different methodology to determine what kind of jobs are most at risk. They, they actually looked at what patents have been um, requested and issued in terms of automation and tried to understand what careers those patents are going to impact. Yeah, and uh, I thought that was an interesting approach. I'm also not sure that it is a, um, a realistic approach because there are so many patents that get issued. Um, there's only a, a small, small percentage that actually become uh, real technologies. So I don't know how, how representative, how representative that be. is of, of what's actually going to happen. Uh, but the, you know, they did talk about some things like um, radiologists, for example, you know, it's a, a, a very um, highly coveted, um, highly paid position. You have to go through a lot of school, but you know, they've shown recently that, that artificial intelligence can find things in radiology images that humans can't. Right. It's better than us. And, and, it, and we can't even figure out why it's better than us in some of those right. cases. Uh, I did think there was some interesting data from here. They saw that 740 out of the 769 occupational groups, basically they, they loop all lump all jobs into these 769 groups. 740 of those have, are at risk of losing some jobs due to AI from these patents. So that's, that's just mind blowing that such a big yeah. percentage is going to, could be impacted. Of course, to, di- to varying degrees, uh, at the top of the list, um, agriculture had the greatest exposure, which kind of shocked me. Yeah, I was shocked as well. I, I don't know. I, I have heard that like they could use AI to determine when you should plant and when you should um, harvest and, and do other things like that. But it just didn't. It just feels like there's got to be a lot of manual effort. I'm surprised that they can get quite such an impact there. Yeah, that was surprising. Um, science, business, finance, technology, manufacturing, natural resources all made the list of most impacted uh, careers. I thought it was interesting, too, that um, they said that workers with a bachelor's degree um, face five times better chance of being disrupted by AI than someone with just a high school degree. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah. So it's I mean, I guess their study was looking at white collar jobs. And so if you're if you're looking at white collar jobs, it probably means you're more educated. Well, I think they were looking across all jobs and they were just showing that white collar jobs are more impacted than they expected. So it is it is surprising to me. Uh, it, it, obviously, we're gonna have to see how this shakes out. Hopefully, just like every other previous revolution, it it doesn't kill jobs. It actually creates a new better jobs. That's that's what we've got to hope for. And we've got to work for. I think the AI is going to uh, self-actualize and kill us all around. Well, I for one welcome our new AI overlords. Awesome. Uh, next, uh, not as happy. Well, a, another not happy story, <laughs> I guess. Uh, four Winds Interactive announces layoffs, including some staff in, in Denver. So 
Uh, Four Winds Interactive is a, is a company here. They make uh, interactive sign signage, signboards uh, that you can put in your offices and things like that. And they announced that they are doing a little bit of restructuring. Um, they have about 450 employees and about 400 of them are in Denver. And uh, I think that they're getting rid of about a little under 10%, about 40 employees. Yeah. Well, they said they wouldn't comment on how many they are, but the, the representative said it's fewer than 40. So you, you would assume that if it was eight, 39, if it was eight, they wouldn't have said fewer than 40, right? right. So you got to f- figure it somewhere in the thirties range. Uh, really disappointing to know. I, I, I do think that, um, you know, we have such a, a vibrant economy here right now that folks should be able to land pretty quickly. Yeah. Of course, if, if anyone knows folks at four winds who are looking for jobs, let's get them plugged in and, and help them find their new, their next landing spot. Uh, hopefully this turns them into a, a more profitable company. Yeah, I agree. Uh, next, this is a follow-up story um, around the coal fire pen testers. We've talked about this several times on the show. Um, I thought this was interesting and we included it in the show notes this week because it made the Denver business journals main page talking about what's happened here and, and really how the the impact to these pen testers being arrested is is really shaking the entire pen testing community, um, and, and the industry is trying to figure out exactly how do we respond to this. Yeah, if you are if you're doing one of these tests, uh, whether you're with Coal Fire or anybody else, and there is a threat that even though a business has said it is okay to perform one of these tests, that you could be arrested or have other um, other things happen to you, then people are going to stop doing. Um, the tests and then you're going to be in a worse place. Just imagine like next time you engage with your pen tester and you tell them you want to do a physical pen test, like how much more difficult is that going to be for us to, to scope and and get them to agree to now, now that, you know, there is this kind of case out there where people have have been arrested for it. Yeah. I'm still hopeful that it can get resolved in a a way that it works for everyone. Um, You know, again, this seems to be to boil down to a, a turf war between different areas of the Iowa government um, hopefully they can they can figure out the right way to handle this. So uh, next, the uh, there's a blog post from Red Canary and uh, talking about how they are working with MITRE to start uh, the Center for Threat Informed Defense. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, it's it's neat to see MITRE trying to put together this uh, collaboration of good guys to talk around like you know based on. The, the threats that are out there, what should we be doing to improve security? The this blog post doesn't give a ton of details on like what we're actually going to do right. as a result of this. Uh, the the initiative sounds right, though. Um, and the groups that are involved are pretty impressive. Uh, they got American Express, Booz Allen Hamilton, City, Fujitsu, Microsoft, Siemens, U.S. Bank as other co- you know, founding sponsors along Red, alongside Red Canary. So it's a pretty good group and, and obviously some some big brains out there that can help uh, kind of guide the way the defensive teams should be preparing their security programs. Yeah, and, and Red Canary has long been a proponent of MITRE's attack framework. Uh, you know, they have the Atomic Red Team framework, which um, does testing around that. And so th- this new group hopefully will continue to uh, make improvements in the attack framework. Awesome. Uh, next story here is that System System 76, we've talked about them on the podcast a few times. We have. They create like high-end Linux workstations um, here in Colorado. They do the manufacturing, which was unique and interesting. Well, they have announced that starting in January 2020, they're going to start they're going to start designing and building their own Linux laptops in addition to those desktops. Yeah, I believe today that they already sell Linux laptops, but they are laptops that are designed by other companies. So And manufactured by other companies. Right, right. So now they are going to be designing and building their own. 
Um, one of the original stories that we talked about with System 76 is they moved their manufacturing, I believe, back from China here to Colorado. And so they're now touting because they have the manufacturing here, uh, they can potentially do a quicker turnaround on that design and manufacture process of this new laptop. So this story is actually from Forbes. So it's not a not a Colorado story. This is yep. a national story. Obviously, big news when a, ca- a ca- uh, computer manufacturers making machines in the U.S. They interviewed the CEO over there, Carl. Is it Richel? Um, and he was quick to point out, you know, even though this is cool and big news, he was quick to point out that this whole process is just starting and it's probably going to take two to three years before they're actually like putting these laptops out into the market. Right. Um, I think it's also cool that there is talk about Linux laptops in general. That that seems to be something that is just novel. Well, I think 2020 is going to be the year of the Linux la- laptop. Yeah. How many years have we been thinking about Linux desktops? Well, it's been a while. Yeah, as long as we've been around, right? Yep. Uh, next, there was a blog post from Ping Identity this week talking about setting off security policies uh, to help secure access for your specific needs. So, you know, I, I've obviously a little self-interested talking about Ping, but I love when we have these kind of blog posts as they give security guys like me who, you know, who don't have 20 years of identity de- deep uh, experience an opportunity to learn some of the ins and outs of the security standards. And, and OAuth is one of those critical uh standards that you should know about. And I also love the fact that they, they started this article out talking about threat modeling and, and basically building your, your identity program and your identity scheme around what are the threats that you're trying to protect against. Uh, makes a lot of sense. It, it makes it much more approachable for those of us who are coming to identity from a different part of security. Uh, and of course, the guy who wrote it, David Waite, is, is a genius and, and one of the guys who's really worth knowing. If you're in Denver, I'd, I'd recommend getting to know David. Or awesome. D, D-Dub, as we call him at Ping. D-Dub. All right. Uh, and then our final news story this week is a blog post from Virtual Armor talking about uh, operational technology versus information technology and the differences and similarities. So if you already know the difference, don't read the article. Right. That, that was the that was my first thought is is this is not for you if you already know the difference. But if you're if you're new and you said, hey, I know what IT is, what's OT? This is a fantastic article to get you introduced to that. Yeah, uh, for someone that needs to learn the basics, understand what the differences are, it is a good overview. Yeah, so I uh, appreciate them putting that kind of stuff out there. And if you're you know, someone who's looking to get into security and someone pointed you toward this podcast, take a look at this article. It'll yep. give you some, some good info. Good stuff. All right, that is it for the news. Let us now move over to the Slack message of the week. A big thanks to Andre Gata. Andre, you have been a great sponsor for the last few years on this. We really appreciate it. Uh, every week, Andre donates his own funds to uh, to recognize one great message from the Slack community. Uh, this week, we have kind of a different type of a message. You know, not a not a celebration, but more of a, uh, a remembrance. Exactly. Uh, so the message this week, uh, we are honoring uh, Jericho, who posted a um, a memorial page that you can. Um, add to for Reed Fudge. We learned this week uh, that Reed had passed away. Uh, Reed was a, a member of the community. He uh, was currently had been CISO for uh, Tri-State Generation, but had been at various different places um, around the area, but has been a great member of the community. Um, I got to know him originally through ISSA. He used to be a, a regular member at, at all the ISSA meetings. Um, it, it was very sad to hear of his passing. Yeah, uh, Reed actually was the head of security for Pulte Financial, which, you know, 
I I was the CISO there and you were, were the CISO there. Yep. Um, we've had, uh, so a lot of things in common with Reed. He'd come to dinners. I've actually been trying to get him as a, as a guest on the podcast for like two years and it's just been timing. We've had it on the calendar several times and gotten scheduled. He's, he was sick intermittently for, for quite a few years. Um, certainly, uh, it's, it's always surprising to hear when a friend passes away. Um, so really sad that we're going to lose this great member of the community. Yeah, and if you would like to to leave a note, um, a memorial for uh, for Reed, you can go out to the the Slack channel, find that post by Jericho. It, it links to the the page where you can uh, leave those memories. And the page is actually on GitHub, so you can, I think you could probably just do a search of GitHub for Reed Fudge, and you'd find him out there too. Uh, thanks to thanks to Jericho for setting that up. Um, we do appreciate it, and, and hopefully we can turn that into a, a useful, useful, worthwhile memorial for those who who knew and loved Reed. All right, uh, let's move over to events. As so, you know, yeah, I was just gonna say this week since there is nothing this week in terms of events, I actually went two weeks further. Oh, all right. That's a, I I didn't know what you were about to jump into, but okay. that's what I wanted to make sure you got that out there. Pro programming note: Rob yeah. and I are are talking about what we're doing, but while we're doing it. <laughs> uh, I, what I was going to say is, as you know, we have an event calendar on our website. So go to colorado-security.com, check out the event calendar. Uh, you can see events for more than two weeks in advance. Um, I think we have stuff all the way out through May already of next year. So as of last night, we have stuff until December of 2020. Wow. Yeah. So uh, plan your years now. Uh, but for the short term, um, you get to hear about the next few weeks. Normally we do two weeks in advance, but since no one is doing anything for Thanksgiving around security events, you get to hear the two weeks yeah, after. There is literally nothing coming up the last week in November, and we won't be doing a show the week after. So, so in December, on the fourth of December, we have SecureSet doing a capture the flag for beginners. So this is a way, a good way to get your your uh, foot in the ring. I don't know. I'll stop talking now. <laughs> Splunk is doing their first Thursdays at Top Golf on the 5th of December. On the 6th, uh, the, Colorado Springs has one of their first Friday cybersecurity events. Uh, on the 7th, uh, SecureSet is doing a You Can Hack It event. This is a Saturday, and it's 10 to 3. So this is meant for those who are thinking about getting into security. I think they did it on a Saturday because they're assuming these people have jobs. But it's a five-hour event to introduce you into security and basically show you that, yes, you too can get in there. So if you know someone who's looking to be a career changer, send them this way. You can hack it. Uh, Uh, Go ahead. Next, on the 10th, ISSA and ISACA are doing their big holiday bash. Yeah, it's going to be a fun event. It's what, like in the afternoon... I think it's afternoon through yep. like maybe one to four or something like that at Soil Dove again this year. This is an event that does sell out. So if you would like to go, you should get tickets. Also on the 10th, later that day, the Cloud Security Alliance is doing their 2019 holiday party because apparently uh, the 10th of December is the day to do it. That's the day. Um, and once you've done your holiday partying, SecureSet is doing a capture the flag on the 10th as well. ASIS Denver, which is once again the physical security group, is doing their December meeting. They have an election and a Christmas gathering on the 12th. Um, also on the 12th, SecureSet is doing a Hacking 101 intro to PowerShell. And finally, ISC Squared Pikes Peak down in the Springs is doing their December chapter meeting on the 13th. That's all we have through December right now. Awesome. So let's jump over to jobs. Uh, first on the list of jobs this week, Bank of America. Um, they are again hiring lots of people. So uh, one of those jobs is they're looking for an information security project manager. They're also hiring a cyber program manager. Not sure what the difference is. One's a cooler word than the other, I guess. So if you like the cybers, go for that job. Ball Corp is hiring a cyber security specialist. Logarithm is looking for a strategic integrations engineer. 
IHS Market is hiring a cybersecurity assessor specialist. Amazon is looking for a senior security engineer. Visa is hiring a senior cybersecurity engineer. Zayo is looking for a cybersecurity analyst three. You noticing a trend here? Cyber is taking over There's these titles. There's a lot titles. of cybers in the, these jobs. Yeah, we got to do better. <laughs> uh, Webroot is hiring a senior global escalation manager on s- second shift. So you want to mm-hmm. hire a SOC or excuse me, manage a SOC. This might be a good opportunity for you. And finally, Home Advisor is looking for an application security engineer. Fantastic. Alex, uh, we have an interview this week, right? We do. What, who did you talk to? This week I talked to uh, Grev, Greg Sevchek. Um, it, it, if you listen to the interview, it took me a little while to get his name pronounced right, but I believe it is Sevchek. Yeah. Uh, he is an attorney at Ballard Spar specializing in privacy and information security. So we had a nice conversation. And you should stick around and listen to that. Uh, Fantastic. Well, thank you for uh, getting the interview ready. And of course, thanks for all those listening. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hopefully you're with family and loved ones. And we'll look forward to talking to you again in December. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Hello, this is Ian Buxton, Senior Director of Information Risk and Security at Vail Resorts. This is Colorado Equals Security. For Colorado security professionals, by Colorado security professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. Uh, this is our feature interview, and this is Alex Wood. And today I am interviewing a very special guest. Um, and of course, before we started, I didn't ask for your correct pronunciation of your last name, Greg, but I'm going to go for it. Greg Swicek. Almost. Oh. You were the first person who has ever gotten that wrong. It is <laughs> yeah, pronounced. I'm sure I am. <laughs> it is pronounced Sevchek. Sevchek. Okay, close enough. Close enough. And. and uh, and welcome to the show. Appreciate you Thank you for taking having some me. time, Greg. Um, so obviously we've been acquainted for a little while, but for those folks that don't know you, who are you? Uh, so I am an, an attorney at the Ballard Spar Law Firm here in Denver, and I also split some of my time up in Boulder. Um, I've been with this firm for about you know closing in on seven years now after spending my first four years out at a law firm in New York. Nice. And you know over the past you know, five to six years, an increasingly large part of my practice is uh, devoted to privacy and information security issues. Very, very nice. So uh, you obviously ended up here. Did you start here? Where are you from originally? So I'm originally from St. Louis, um, then went to undergrad up at Notre Dame, okay, and then law school at Harvard, and then down to New York to start my career. And I started my career at uh, one of the big law firms out in New York doing almost entirely litigation and especially a lot of trial work. Um, then about you know, closing in on seven years ago, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I came out here. We'd had family in the area for decades yeah. and both loved to ski and hike and camp. And back then, as you'll remember, Denver was actually, you know, a much slower, quieter town. Right. And that really appealed to us. Um, so we found our way out here, and that's when I started working for Ballard. Nice. Um, and so it was, sounds like it was location first, firm second. Right. It was really the first time in our lives that we picked a city based, based on what we wanted out of life. And then right. found jobs or, you know, rather than having school or a job dictate where we lived. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, when you were doing the uh, the litigation work, was it in a similar field to what you're doing now? Or was it just sort of general litigation? Or what kind of work were you doing then? It was kind of across the board. Um, the, the team that I worked on in New York, it was a, a really a team that focused on doing actual trial work more than any substantive specialty. And so that's kind of what I was focused on doing when I first came out here as well. Okay. So, uh, so what then, uh, what changed your focus? Why, why did you end up 
in uh, information security, privacy kind of law? Uh, well, I mean, since the listeners can't necessarily see me, I'm 35. Um, and I'd been interested in following various tech issues for a long time and always was very interested in it. We, uh, we ended up having an attorney start with us named Ed McAndrew, who had been with the Department of Justice for a decade doing cyber crimes prosecution. And he was somebody who really uh, was looking for more people to join what he wanted to you know, grow as a team. And we didn't really have anybody out here doing it at that time. So me and another attorney you know, kind of got in touch with him and started really focusing on that and trying to grow it from out here. Nice. Uh, as, as you are well aware, that was a good choice. Um, <laughs> it, it is a, a growing and uh, an exciting place to be these days. It is. I mean, it, it's really exciting and interesting, both from the you know, business side of law of growing a new practice, but also, as, as you're well aware, it's kind of been the Wild West as far as generally applicable laws right. go. And you know, things are still changing and will continue to change. And it's you know, fun and exciting to be a part of that. Yeah, it's got to be one of those interesting things. Um, you know, if you're in uh, in general litigation or in business law or things like that, there are probably new things that come up. But my guess is that it's probably mostly the same slight changes. You know, new precedents are set, so on and so forth. But in somewhere like that, like cybersecurity law, or maybe something like um, like marijuana law, or you know, just other things like that, where it's like, oh, we've never had anything in this area. It's probably all sort of trailblazing kind of work, and I'm sure that's pretty neat too. Yeah, it's it's fun. I mean, you, you whether you're trying to figure out new ways to structure uh, a compliance regime to both fit the business need and comply with the laws, or whether you're on the back end and you're in litigation, there's just there's a lot of flexibility and freedom there because there just isn't the precedent yet. And I mean, that's going to be changing in coming years, especially with uh, the CCPA coming in with the private right of action with statutory damages. A lot of times data breach litigation hasn't gotten that far because it's just economically difficult for plaintiffs to prove damages and make it right. worth carrying on the case. Now that there's that statutory damage component, we expect to see cases start getting a little further and there will be a growing body of case law, but you know, we don't really know exactly where it's going to be yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, of CCPA, we are, we're recording this near the end, middle end of November. Um, it goes into effect in January. Uh, what do you expect is going to happen come January? Uh, I don't think that the sky is going to fall. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that we're going to see a lot of companies who are maybe not all the way done with their compliance efforts like they'd hoped to be, but they're part of the way there. They're going to keep moving forward. You know, I think that the California Attorney General's office is going to be reasonable in their enforcement efforts. You know, I think that they're going to be looking for people or businesses trying to make compliance efforts and doing what they can. But I don't think that they're going to have a to the T approach right off the bat. Yeah. Um, I also think that we're going to see a lot of plaintiff's lawsuits filed for data breaches. Yeah, I, I would imagine that will happen. Um, Actually, and now that I, I think about it, let's step back for one second. I think most people probably know uh, what CCPA is, but for those that are not privacy folks and maybe um, are more focused on security, can you give a, a quick overview of uh, what CCPA is and what it means to people? Sure. So, I mean, the CCPA is the first generally applicable consumer privacy law in the United States, passed by California. Like Alex said, goes into effect January 1st. Uh, and so what we're talking about are 
businesses that cross the threshold for application are going to owe consumers a host of rights related to their privacy. And you know, the way that I, I kind of talk about it with clients who you know, take a lot of different issues into consideration, you have information security. How are you protecting what is tr traditionally thought of as sensitive information, so socials, financial numbers? You have data breach law, which is what do you do after that's lost? And then you have privacy law. What are you doing with the information that you legally have? Who are you sharing it with? Who are you selling it to? What are you doing with it? Right. And so this is really the first generally applicable law that deals with that third piece. Um, and consumers will have the various rights to ask what a business has. They'll have the right to ask you to delete it. They'll have the right to ask uh, that you don't share it with anybody else, all subject to various exceptions. Right. So this obviously is applicable to folks in California. Um, you know, it, it, as I think we are both well aware and most people are aware that this applies to California residents. Um, how do you think this is going to affect, uh, probably both in the short term and in the long term, everyone else in the U.S. that's not a California resident? Right. Well, uh, if you pass a certain thresholds, it doesn't matter where you are if you're taking California resident information. So if you're okay. a company here in Colorado who does business online and collects Colorado or California residents, Correct. then you're yes. going to be subject to it. Right, right. But, you know, I think what you may be getting at there is last year we saw, I think, 18 states propose some form of privacy legislation with some of them getting across the board, you know, until and unless the federal government ever steps in and passes a nationwide law. We're going to, I think we're going to see the same thing here that we've seen in the data breach and infosec world, which is each state's going to pass its own privacy law that's slightly different from the others and probably over time competes to be the strictest uh, law out there. Yeah, like I know uh, Nevada also uh, passed a law that uh, is already in effect, went into effect almost immediately, um, but was was much narrower than uh, than the California law is. So it, it's, you know, only, I think it's only applicable to, to people who actually sell data for profit as opposed to the more broader definition of selling data uh, in California. Um, do you think, uh, where, where do you think the, the, next, uh, the next contestant will be? Um, is it going to be New York? Is it going to be uh, Massachusetts? Is it going to be, where, where do you think it's going to come? Yeah, I mean, Massachusetts is, is a state that a lot of people think is going to be the next one to get it across the board. Yeah. New York had one out this year that did not, that it, I think it died in committee. Um, so that could be coming back. I mean, it really depends on how some, I mean, I think, you know, next year's obviously an election year. Right. That could figure into various states, you know, who votes for what bill that they might not otherwise. But from what I've heard, Massachusetts is up there, Hawaii's up there, and New York could be bringing it back too. I've also heard that Washington may be bringing back its bill that uh, stalled in around June of last year. Well, and then I've also heard, um, Again, for those that don't know, there was a, quite a saga around CCPA and how it came into existence. There was originally um, someone that was pushing a ballot measure, um, and then at the last minute, the legislature um, sort of made a compromise, passed uh, the CCPA uh, with the provision that this person would take the ballot measure away uh, because the ballot measure was more strict. Um, and now that CCPA is in place, that same person has said, hey, right. I'm, com I'm coming back <laughs> next year, and I'm going to do a, a, an even stricter uh, version of this um, that I'm going to put on the on the ballot, and I, I don't know yet if there have been any you know additional discussions with uh, legislators there in California 
um, about you know additional compromise to you know kind of do the same thing that they did last time. Yeah, I haven't heard. I mean, there's going to have to be some discussions that go on anyway because certain uh, certain provisions. You know, we, we've been talking about the CCPA, and it's probably worth noting that. With the InfoSec and the data breach laws, they tend to apply to you know the sensitive information, whereas privacy applies to virtually all personal information. Um, but there were a couple amendments passed towards the end of this year um, that excluded things like employee data is not treated the same as all other data, okay. but it has a one-year sunset clause on that. Right. Um, there's also the business-to-business -business exception. Again, it has a one-year sunset clause, so there's gonna have to be changes or debates going on. And I would expect that that's kind of roped in if the new ballot proposal you know, gets any kind of traction, right. that they'll do what they can to, to make those compromises again. You know, one other thing that I, I saw recently, uh, Microsoft put out a, a press release saying that, um, that from their perspective, it doesn't matter if you live in California or not. If you're in the US, it may, well, I think it was just in the US, but maybe it was even broader than that. Um, then you will be able to exercise uh, the same rights under CCPA even if you're a Colorado resident or or anywhere else. Um, I was well, I was surprised a little bit that someone would would uh, come out and do that. But I guess you know if you're you're going to have to comply in California, um, you may as well just comply everywhere. Do you, do you see other businesses following suit? You know, I've actually had this conversation with almost all of my clients, yeah. and you know, the, the, it really comes down to the individual businesses. Um, clients that are in the business of, you know, set, not necessarily selling data, but using personal information as a way to sell their product or to run their business, have actually been the ones who seem more interested in trying to apply it across the board. Whether or not it's because of you know, compliance costs of trying to parse it out right. or because they do build it into their brand and corporate culture of trying to respect privacy. You know, they've been trying to build it in. Other companies that don't really collect much data and don't do much with it and don't have much California data, you know, they, they pick up some just through general website usage, but they're not selling things directly to consumers. They're not selling any data to anybody they're just basically having pure compliance cost without really providing that much of, you know, I don't want to say not a meaningful right to the consumer, right. but to let the consumer demand, you know, send in a verified request of what do you have on us. You say, we have your IP right. address. We can delete it if you want. You know, it's almost pure compliance cost to them without really providing a lot back. They're tending to stick to the, we're going to have a California only uh, section. So Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And it, the original uh, intent, I think, of the of the measure was to try and limit the the Microsofts and the Googles and the Facebooks and those those sorts of folks from doing things with their data that you didn't want them to. But it's much harder to craft something that focuses just on them. Um, you know, where do you draw the line, right? So you do have a bunch of the, those businesses where you know you probably willingly provided your information to to somebody, um, and now they fall under this uh, under CCPA. And it, it, it's maybe not exactly what was intended, but you know it, it is still a good thing if you've uh, if you have those rights to be able to exercise them. So I, I can see where, um, from those those companies' perspectives, it's oh yeah, we really do have uh, privacy as a core value, or at least want to project that. Right. Um, so you know, so let's let's give this to everybody and, and make it at the very least look like we, we care about your privacy. Yeah. So. 
Um, and some of them actually had, you know, the the rudimentary ideas they were already offering that before the CCPA even came in. Right. Um, but it was much more of a, you know, off the cuff. Here's a paragraph on our website that said, if you want, you know, you control your privacy rights, get right. in touch with us to let us know. Right. And so this at least, you know, got them to kind of formalize it a little better. Yeah, I mean, and I guess, you know, Google and Facebook and other things like that, you know, you can request already what data they have on you. Um, and you can theoretically request to delete it. Um, I, I think that's a very strong theoretically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you can request it. So it, anyway, um, a couple of years back, uh, Colorado passed a, I think what was billed as a data privacy uh, bill, but in my mind is more a data security bill. Right. Um, you were involved early on that. You and um, you know one of the former attorneys here, Dave Staus, uh, put out a book on, on that uh, regulation and, and uh, you know what it was and how it might uh, impact people. In, in the, the time, I guess, it, has it been a year now, a little over a year since it's yeah, been in place? Yeah, it was uh, September of 2018 is when it went into effect. Um, what, what have you seen now that that's been in effect for a year? I mean, so uh, I, I know you were out at the uh, cybersecurity summit we hosted in October here, and yeah. we had some folks from the Attorney General's office come out and kind of talk about their enforcement efforts and how things have been ramping up and what they've been doing. What we've seen from clients is, you know, similar to what we've seen with the CCPA in some ways is it just forces the focus of some of the, the real decision makers to start looking into what are we doing? What do we have? Why are we having this? You know, something that we'd seen, you know, here in Colorado with some of the companies before that law came out is we talked to someone in the legal department and the tech department, and they're really honed in on these issues. Right. But it was sometimes tough to get the C-suite level people to really focus in because there wasn't much forcing them to. You know, it, it's an issue that you sometimes hear in the news, but you don't think it's going to be applicable to your business. Um, and then with the new law being passed, it puts some affirmative obligations it starts really focusing attention down where I you know I think it should be, right. and doing a lot of good in that way. Yeah, I'm trying to remember from from that presentation. I know they said that they there have been a few enforcement actions that have come um, because of that law. Um, were there any notable ones that you remember that have, have happened that have been a benefit to, to Colorado consumers because of this law? They were very tight-lipped on anything that happened because I believe all of them were still ongoing. Okay. Um, they, they talked about numbers of enforcement act actions and investigations that they have going on, but they, uh, they're they very serious about keeping things confidential until anything's public. Where um, On that same front, where do you think Colorado stands in terms of a data privacy kind of law in, in increase in use, or, uh, consumers' rights um, around privacy for the state? Yeah, so um, I know So Attorney General Weiser was at the summit and uh, gave a quick speech about how Colorado is working in concert and on its own. It's working in concert with some of the other Western AGs and on its own just looking into where Colorado goes with this. Um, they haven't, you know, I spoke to an, uh, somebody in their office a few weeks ago and it, it's my understanding they haven't quite put pencil to paper yet, but they're starting to form their ideas. And what they're really looking to do is you know, see if there's a way to use what's good from the CCPA or the GDPR, you know, things that would drive data minimization and transparency and make it less of a 
burden when it doesn't right. need to be a burden. So try to find another model. Um, and what Attorney General Weiser was really talking about was, you know, we may see something similar to what happened with data breach across the country where we have 40 states with different laws, but maybe they follow two or three different types of models. And those could eventually serve as the framework after, you know, the the laboratories of democracy theory, that if the federal government actually does put something out, then maybe they end up following the Colorado one because it works a little better than the, than the California one. Um, so, you know, that's, I, I don't know if it's going to happen next year, but I do think that Colorado is going to end up getting something out um, in their legislature within the next couple of years, probably. Interesting. Um, so, so you just mentioned uh, f potential federal legislation. Uh, what... What is your over-under uh, on when you think uh, any potential federal privacy regulation will happen? I, I think there's virtually zero chance before the 2020 elections. Um, there's just, I mean, the, the dynamics in Washington right now are not conductive to getting yeah. what would need to be a bipartisan, difficult technical bill uh, through. Um, we see principal papers and proposals coming out all the time. And just they, they really don't have a whole lot of legs. Um, I know we were talking before we started recording. Yeah. Yesterday, a group of four Democratic senators released a two-page paper about uh, principles for an eventual bill Excuse me. Um, that included a private right of action. And I think that you know, maybe an eventual bill does have something like that, but for the next year, year and a half, that's not going to be something that can get enough yeah. uh, bipartisan support. What do you think, um, in your opinion, what are those important principles that would, that would make a successful federal privacy bill? And I think first and foremost is data minimization. Um, I know we've talked and I've had the conversation with a lot of people is right now we can craft all of these rights and notices and disclosures and you can require that they be made without legal jargon and is in as much plain English as possible, but that still puts a lot of the burden on individual consumers to go look and see what their rights are and then take some kind of action to, uh, to either see what they have specifically or have that uh, deleted or opt out of sharing. And most people are very busy in their lives. And you know, it's not necessarily to say that that's a bad thing to have it that way. But really, I think what's gonna drive safety is transparency of knowing what you have, but then also having some incentives for businesses not to have large amounts of information that they don't have, because you can't right. lose what you don't have. Right, yeah, and uh, we were talking about this a little bit before, but you have a whole bunch of competing regulations too, right? So there's, there's lots of regulations that are aiming to do one thing or another, and may require businesses to keep data for a certain amount of time. Uh, you know, in the financial industry, there's a lot of regulations where you have to have stuff for seven years um, or, a, a, you know, approximate, right? So it, it could be, uh, you know, fair lending or it could be, uh, you know, other sort of anti-discrimination kind of things, right? It's like, hey, we, we want to be able to keep this data so that we can show over time uh, whether or not you know you are discriminating against com consumers or things like that, and, and that's a, a great thing, right? We don't want consumers to be discriminated against. But then on the other hand, it's okay. Well, now I'm going to have to keep all of the data that I get from my customers, you know, all sort of in quotes, um, for some certain period of time. And even if I want to get rid of it, I can't get rid of it. So uh, 
where, how do you, you know, weigh that risk between, um, you know, keeping the data to help with one particular potential harm and it having the opposite unintended consequence of causing another harm because we have that data? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question. And I mean, in some ways it comes down to, it reminds me of how in so many information security laws, so many states have avoided going into specifics about what you need to do because there are always these competing balances. Right. And so you get down to a reasonable standard. And, and in some ways that's what regulators have to do when it comes to record retention and data minimization is what's gonna be reasonable? What do we, how long do we really need to go back to make sure that we're protecting these important goals of uh, avoiding and reducing and policing discriminatory practices with putting all of that data at potential risk of a malicious actor you know, getting into it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can see something where you, you instead of having to keep it for a certain amount of time, you, um, I, I don't know, you, you do some sort of compliance activity, you know, on a shorter period of time, and then you could get rid of the data or, you know, something like that. Uh, I can see where there could be incentives again, like that. Hey, if you do these compliance activities, one, um, you know, you can potentially reduce your compliance burden over the long term for this other regulation, and you can get rid of this data. So I, I don't know. It's not an easy question because it, it doesn't just affect you know one regulation, too, right? So you can't just put out a privacy regulation um, without then going back and, and touching these other regulations to to change them to help with that. Right, and that's you know that's getting back to the the over under on getting something done on the right. federal level. This is going to be a, not just on the mm -hmm. substance of the you know what are the rights that we want to have, but it's going to touch a lot of other regulations and bills, and that's tricky. That's going to take a lot of time and effort to think through all that. So you're you're saying if I put the over at infinity, you're still taking the over. That's I would think <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, so uh, you deal uh, with a lot of clients here. Um, what are some of the other hot button items that, that they are talking with you about? Or is it, or is everyone just coming to you for CCPA right now? You know, it's, it's not just CCPA. It's kind of trying to read the tea leaves of, you know, we might have this fairly small risk profile for CCPA, but we do need to go through this compliance effort right now. How do we do this in a way that we're not doing it again next year? Um, and a lot of clients are also using this as an opportunity to really take a, you know, they're already doing annual risk assessments, but really doing more of a business and legal oriented assessment of their general information security programs. And so, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, so um, how would you say that differs uh, between a normal risk assessment and, and what you just described? What, what, what would be the differences there? I think from a technical standpoint, maybe not all that much with the exception that it might give more buy-in from the business side and the willingness to spend more dollars. Um, because the, the risk assessments were already going in a lot on the technical side, but with now you know the new threats coming in, not just you know malicious actor threats, but legal threats, civil litigation, enforcement, right. there's the cost-benefit analysis of what you're going to do is, is changing a little bit. And so it gives a little more buy-in from the business side of, we got to make sure we're covered on this. Right. Um, I feel like one of the, this is going to sound funny, but one of the sort of solved problems, and it, it's not solved at all, but it's something that I don't hear about as much anymore, is, um, is people getting, doing the, the, the breach preparation sort of activities and, and those sorts of things. Do you still have... 
clients that are coming to you saying, hey, um, we haven't ever even done this before. You know, we need to either, you know, we need your help in starting a program or starting um, with help on what we do in, in case of a breach or things like that. Um, am I naive to think that that, that may have, have slowed down a little bit as people have matured? I don't think you're naive, but I think it all depends on the maturity of the company that you're dealing with. Uh, I mean, if you're dealing with a venture company and we, we do try to, I don't know what the word, scale our services to startups so that to help people build privacy and information security into their programs from the ground up. Yeah. But you know, some of them, they, they really are just starting up or they've been a two or three employee shop for a year or so and they're just getting that first real round of, real round of funding. And they're turning to these issues as soon as they can. They have something in place, right. but they don't really have it from the standpoint that you would expect to see. Um, so we are still you know, seeing clients who come from, you know, we need to start from square one. Uh, but I do think that as far as the more sophisticated entities, it, it's, things have been developed a little more for a while. Yeah, no, that, that is good. Um, I'm glad to hear that there still aren't troves of, of well-established companies that are, are completely naive when it, when it comes to these sorts of things. Um, so, so what other things um, are, are clients coming to you for today? Um, you know, the, the privacy is really driving it, especially right now going in the fall with a January 1st compliance date. Um, and one area where we're seeing that focus a lot is people are looking really hard at their vendor contracts. Um, what used to get kind of scanned over by a general corporate counsel in-house, they're now running it by us with almost every single vendor contract to make sure they're getting things in place. So I think that's actually a really good byproduct of the CCPA. And what sort of things are they uh, interested in running by you guys for? General um, data security, um, the potential provisions that are needed um, for CCPA, like, hey, you guys are going to have to delete data if we tell you to delete data, things like that. It, what are they coming to you for? Both of those. Um, you know, I think that they've been doing their general data security reviews with their technical teams in-house, but there's a lot of companies are now starting to square in on, is there something in here from a legal standpoint, from a contractual standpoint, that is letting them off the hook unintentionally, or that we're, we have some yeah. kind of exposure here when we didn't expect to? Um, so I think on that, on that side, a lot of it is more buttoning up from a legal contractual standpoint and then making sure they have everything in to ensure that it is in fact a service provider um, under the CCPA, making sure that they have an obligation to comply or cooperate with uh, requests for access to information or deletion or the opt-out. Um, and then you know, something else that we are seeing clients come in uh, more and more for are actually you know, tabletop exercises, which you would have thought came along with the more sophisticated right. uh, breach response and incident response regimes. But I think that it's you know, a, a byproduct of we can spend more time, more than money, but time of very you know, important C-suite people to come in and make sure that we've done this. Um, and, and so that's just all kind of getting swept in together. Yeah, that is interesting. Are they asking you for uh, participation in those events or are they asking you to sort of run those events for them, come up with the scenarios, bring the people together, that kind of thing? Uh, more the latter. Yeah. The, the running them, set it, putting it on for them. Yeah. So do you have a, um, uh, n nothing against lawyers, but <laughs> they're, um, in, in, my, in my history and um, experience, 
you need a sort of special kind of person to come up with a lot of those scenarios and figure out how to run them in the right way. Do you guys have a specialized group that does that? Yeah, or... I, I'm sorry, our, our privacy and data security group has been doing these for, for years now, yeah. so we've got you know, a, a good deck to choose from. That's nice. obviously always changing as, yeah. as the threats change. Nice, yeah, it's, uh, I know that there are uh, some consultancies that focus on on those sorts of things as well, but it, it's interesting to hear that that law firms are are getting into that business too. So. Yeah, I mean we're in kind of a a strange industry where law, business, and tech overlap a lot, right. um, and everybody's trying to make sure that they're staying in their appropriate lane. Right. But those lanes do overlap from time to time, and for sure, that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah. Um, well, we are uh, we are running. Uh, close to time. We've got a little bit longer. Um, what is it that you wanted to talk about, Greg, that I haven't hit on yet? You know, I'd actually be interested hearing from you from someone who's been, you know, at a very high level on the tech side. Sure. You know, you, you've asked me a little bit about, you know, what laws, what, what do I think would drive it in the laws? What do you see from your side that would really drive, you know, a stepping outside of our roles that we've had for our jobs? You know, what would be, do you want to see in a law that would allow for meaningful consumer protection, but not be crippling from a compliance standpoint? Yeah, um, it's, I think that the, I think anything from the federal level would help at this point. Um, not that, uh, it would probably hurt in some cases because it would probably water down some uh, areas, but the amount of time that it takes to comply with 50 states' laws it, it is just an amazing amount uh, of time from a compliance perspective. So any sort of um, narrowing of that that amount of work that you have to do to comply with everybody, you know, whether it's you know some a national law or some sort of clearinghouse or something like that, uh, I think will positively affect consumers because it will it will give those security teams time back to to do the things that matter instead of performing. Uh, you know, big compliance activities to make sure that they're in compliance with all the state laws. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, some specific activities, uh, the I think the thing that I've harped on a lot recently is a little bit about what we talked about before. Is don't if I can if I can get rid of data, um, I would love to do it. But there are just some times when I am not allowed to get rid of data. If if there was you know, some provision where we could either, I, I don't know what the, the right answer is. I don't know what the right answer is. But if there was a way for regulated industries to be able to get rid of some of that data that they are um, now required to keep, um, I think it would be a, a pretty big deal. So th those are things that I, I think would be useful. Um, I do like the uh, the, the privacy laws from a consumer perspective that are coming in. Um, obviously, it means more, more work and more time from a security uh, practitioner's perspective. Um, but I think that you know, we as consumers should have more rights around our data. Uh, I am, I'm worried at how, how the current feelings and, um, and practices we have around data in our country, say versus in Europe, um, how those will actually interact with privacy right. laws, right? We we are much more free with our data here. Um, we, you know, there are not nearly as many places where privacy is a right in this country. 
Uh, you know, California is one of those places where privacy is a right versus Europe where uh, it is a right for, for pretty much everybody there. Uh, so I don't know if, uh, back to my question to you about the over, over under on when a, a federal bill will come in. Um, I'll take the over also, just because I think it's gonna take so long from a cultural perspective for, for people to even want to make that change. Um, it, what I hear a lot is people saying, hey, well, you know, if you don't like the, you know, the, your data being lost, don't use that company. Well, we've seen time and time again, big data breaches and maybe a short um, drop in the stock price of that company. And then it goes back above right. where it was to start with. So clearly consumers don't have a problem with data breaches. Um, you know, a small percentage maybe are, are critically affected and obviously it causes them a lot of pain. But, you know, in general, people don't seem to have a problem with that. So I think I mean, it'll that, be a long time. That, that kind of gets to when we were talking about uh, case law and precedent coming out. One argument that you do see made, but it hasn't really been adjudicated yet, is you know, for a data breach, causation of damages. Right. Even if you have concrete damages from an identity theft, say, your information has probably been breached multiple times right. in the not-so-distant past. How do you prove that it was caused by that? And I hear a lot of people come up with that as, yeah, it's another data breach. You know, it happens all the time. My info's right. all over the dark web. So what? Yeah, I, I think it will. It, it will take a big shift. One for us to move away from things like social security numbers uh, being an identifier and needing to be a sensitive piece of information. Right? Um, there are things that the, the the federal government could definitely do um, so that it is not a big deal that people know your social security number. Uh, I think also there is there would have to be an appetite for that because then you're going to have to come up with some sort of other national identifier, right. um, and then you're going to have a whole bunch of people saying the government are trying to track me. I don't <laughs> want them to do that, and you know so on and so forth. Um, I think it is interesting. Uh, some uh, some countries and I think even some states now are trying to move more into digital identities. Um, you know Estonia is one that they have a whole digital identity. Um, on the flip side of that, I think India is another one uh, that has some uh, pieces also, and they, they had some sort of data breach of their <laughs> national identity database, which is a bad thing. Uh, but I, I think North Dakota is also working on some stuff. So uh, I think maybe some outside of the box thinking and some different kind of ideas instead of us trying to bolt on and continually modify the stuff that we already have, maybe thinking of the problem in a different way could help. Yeah, I mean, I think that that sounds like it is probably the future, especially given like what you said. I mean, most people, it doesn't seem it, it rises to a level where they're going to push their representatives or senators to do anything. I mean, what could be bigger than, you know, the Equifax or Cambridge Analytica or something else? Right. I, I, there just isn't that much that you can think of that would right. really shock the public into demanding action right. at this point. Right. If Equifax, where they basically gave up every person's personal right. identifiable information, if that's not going to do it. What would? Uh, what would? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, unless, yeah. The, the only thing worse is that that happens and then immediately everyone is, suffers from identity theft. That, that's, right. you know. That's the only other the consequence that could happen after that. So anyway, um, well, thanks for that, Greg. Yeah, um, on that cheery note. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it, it is, uh, it's not very often when one of the interviewees asks me a question. So I, I appreciate that. I'm happy to do it. 
Uh, awesome. Anything else we didn't cover? No, I think that was a great conversation. And you know, anytime you'd like to talk more, always happy to come back on. Awesome. Well, thanks, Greg. I appreciate your time. This has been Colorado Equal Security, and we will talk to you next time. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.